Good evening. Welcome to Duke University Chapel. I'm Luke Powery, the, the Dean of the Chapel, and we are glad that you are here on a Tuesday evening, and also welcome to those who are watching on the live webcast for this public conversation that we are calling Every Life Sacred, the urgency to end gun violence. Tonight's conversation is a part of what we call the Bridge Panel Series. And Bridge Panels are around various topics, but it's a place where we seek to connect people from different walks of life in order to discover shared pathways toward the beloved community of God. And so before I say anything else, just so you know um, that you will have the opportunity in this conversation to submit questions. There are note cards, maybe they were given to you as you came in, or maybe they're at the end of, do, do you all have note cards? If you, we could, just raise your hand if you need a note card. I think we should probably pass those out um, now, and Jessica, um, we'll be doing that. And so at any, and so at a certain point in this conversation, we will, I'll request those note cards and we will pose some of those questions to our panelists. So we probably won't get to all the questions, but we will get to some. I also want to invite all of you that after the conversation together, uh, there will be a small reception in the narthex and the, the entrance of the chapel um, afterwards. And so you can continue the conversation there about tonight's topic. And so as we move closer to this topic, um, let me just say a personal note. I'm Dean of the chapel here, but in relation to this topic, I stand here as a person. I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, and having and have family members whose lives have been taken by gun violence um, and whose lives have been threatened by gun violence. And in many ways, this conversation tonight is not just a theological one or a sociological one, but it is personal for many of us, uh, even in this room. And so as we move into this conversation, it's I would think it's apparent to many of us um, one reason why we are here, and that is the urgency to end gun violence. Um, there's been a string of mass shootings in our country, uh, in Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio, as well as murders in our own city here in Durham, including more recently, the, the tragic death of nine-year-old Zion person. And just in the last week in Germany, a heavily armed gunman killed two people outside of a synagogue on Yom Kippur. So in many ways, we gather with a global reality that's also local, but we also gather with the sense that this killing has got to stop somehow. And that's what we're here to talk about. Another reason to have this conversation in this particular space, Duke University Chapel known as the great towering church at the center of a major research university, the spiritual center 
of this university. We're here because in many ways, we believe that every life is sacred. Um, the reason that these deaths by guns are so tragic and wrong is that every life is precious. Human life is a gift from God and we are all made in the image of God. And so when we turn on one another in violence, we are doing violence to God. And so I'm glad that I'm not here by myself to address this topic because it's a large, vast topic. And we have some wonderful guests here with us who are willing to take time out of their busy schedule to be with us, who have particular insights into this topic um, and to help us reflect a little bit on how we might go about ending gun violence. All the way to the end is Chief C.J. Davis, who is the chief of the Durham Police Department. She has led the department for three years and was almost four, and was recently chosen to lead the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. To her right, we have Professor Kristen Goss, who is the Kevin D. Gorder Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at Duke. She is a nationally recognized expert on gun violence and the author with her Duke colleague, Philip Cook, of the book, The Gun Debate, What Everyone Needs to Know. Oh, this is in great order. To her right, we have Mr. Rob Belcher, who is the founder of the community group Chance to Change. To deter violence in parts of Durham that have experienced it, Chance to Change works with residents to build community, create a visibly peaceful presence in the streets, and share information on gun violence prevention. And then last but not least, next to me is the Reverend Ben Haas, who is the Executive Director of the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. The coalition both supports men and women as they transition from prison back into the community and holds vigils for people killed in Durham that bring together community and family members for prayer and healing. Can we welcome all of our panelists? Come on. So I'm going to ask them a few questions and um, they'll respond for a while and then at the right time, we'll open it up to your questions. So my first question to all of you is this, from your perspective, what are the root causes of gun violence? Why has it become such a big problem? And anyone can jump in. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> Maybe it would be helpful to say a little bit before we get to the really tough question mm -hmm. of root causes, mm -hmm. um, something about the, the rate of gun violence in America and how it compares mm. to other places. That's so. Good. Um, I, I'm the resident political scientist and I, I think my role here is to give maybe a little bit of context and a little bit about mm -hmm. what social scientists and others know about mm -hmm. 
this very important issue. Um, so there are about 40,000 gun deaths in America um, in any given year. Um, about 24,000 of those are suicides. So suicides are actually the most common form of gun death, which is something probably people don't think about very much. And then about 15,000 are homicide and the rest are accidents and, and so forth. Um, there are also probably about 85,000 at least non-fatal gunshot wounds that are treated by emergency rooms. So that's gonna be an undercount of the actual number. So more than twice as many people who are injured but um, don't succumb to gunshots um, each year as, as there are gun deaths. Um, the rates of gun violence in this country are um, many times the rates of other advanced industrial countries. So um, for all types of gun death, we have a rate about six times Canada's, 12 times Australia's, and more than 50 times the United Kingdom's. Um, the good news is that in the aggregate, um, compared to the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, the rate of gun homicide is, has come down dramatically. So our rates right now are comparable to the mid-60s. Um, still way too many, um, but there has been some improvement. So um, I'm gonna, uh, with that, let my colleagues answer the harder question. <laughs> Thank you. Nice job. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what are the root causes of gun violence? Thank you for that context. Yeah, and, and I believe too that, um, you know, putting that foundation in place to really talk about how the United States compares to other countries is important as well. I've recently done some research as well and those numbers are just about right. We must have been reading the same books. <laughs> but um, the United States compared to other European countries, uh, we're right at about 10 persons per 100,000 people a year. And other countries are at one or less. Some are at zero just about. Mm -hmm. So it, it does make you wonder, what are we doing in the United States or what should we be doing in the United States to impact the uh, prevalence of gun violence. Uh, when you look at those numbers just on a bar chart, it's staggering uh, to see you know, where we are. But when we talk about causes, mm -hmm. you know, um, I looked at a survey recently and I jotted some no notes down about what people think the causes of gun violence is. Some folks uh, believe that uh, the decline in parenting and family values. Some believe that uh, parole early releases and short sentencing of violent offenders. The first one that I said is about 38% of people believe that gun violence and the prevalence of gun violence sort of emanates from the lack of having that family support system and issues within the home. 14% uh, um, uh, spoke about violent offenders and then there's this other group, about 14%. Pop culture influence, violent movies, video games, and so on uh, that our young people um, are engaged in, about 14%. And then poor identification and treatment of mentally ill individuals, um, about 10%. And then the other 4 and 2% are different categories. So. As a law enforcement professional, I see a number of different types of situations that um, may be causes of gun violence 
everything from what I've listed here to um, the fact that there is an affinity for guns in this country and that there is this, um, like I have, hadn't seen in my career, everybody wants a gun and it's uh, some for good reason. Some people feel that, you know, having a weapon will protect them and their families as they see, you know, uh, crime escalate in certain communities. And then there are other individuals that just like guns. Um, our young people uh, are, um, have more access to weapons than, than I've ever seen before. And the affinity to just shoot weapons, whether there is a target or not, is what we see on a regular basis. That's why we see an increase of aggravated assaults. Um, aggravated assaults meaning that it's not necessarily someone that actually got shot by a weapon, but the weapon was discharged just out of the affinity to want to fire a weapon. So uh, I know I said a lot, but I know my colleagues here have comments as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate the context because I think it's it, it can be missing, and, and I think that she's speaking to these questions of, uh, of perception, right, of how we feel, mm -hmm. um, what our sense is of where this is coming from. And I think I really like that this question pushed us in that direction because I find um, that when we talk about gun violence and what it causes it and what it costs us, it looks different. When it goes from in your nation to in your city to in your neighborhood to at your door to in your family. Those are very different vantage points from which to consider. And so I, I want to say that in part to underscore that for me, everything I'm saying tonight comes from 30 odd years of having the luxury of not thinking about gun violence and then several years of thinking about it every single day in the context of folks like the ones at this table who walk through Durham thinking about it every single day because they don't have the option or they haven't taken the option um, to be ignorant in the way that I, I was fortunate to be able to be. So, but when I think about that question of perspective, I just want to lift up a couple of witnesses from that several years. And one is um, Reverend Mel Williams, who co-founded the Religious Coalition 27 years ago. And he would probably talk to you about the intersection of violence, poverty, and racism, especially from on the ground in Durham. That's what's driving homicide in Durham, uh, by and large. And he would talk about and connect that nationally to guns. And our relationship to guns, as the chief pointed out, particularly like he, he might say something like the idolatry of gun ownership in America, the fact that we seem to trust the dominating power of weaponry more than we trust any greater force that might combine us in humanity and humility. The other voice I want to lift up is one who's actually sitting right here, Miss Wilma Liverpool, who at most every single coalition vigil that we hold comes with a prayer that speaks dead center to the question of root causes. And I just want to lift up that Miss Wilma asked in the name that all of all that is holy, asked for divine help and forgiveness for forced poverty and entrenched self-hatred that fuel inequitable violence among black and brown people in this city. And she's helped me to understand that to stand in that space is to ask to help us do what needs to be done. She'll often pray to achieve a peace with justice we're in centuries of systemic oppression that underlie some of the violence we see in Durham could be addressed and redressed. So I, I think those perspectives that from on the ground, looking up, um, are, are some of what's informed me thinking about how perspective 
shapes where we find ourselves. And, and the reason I like both of those voices is that they seem so grounded in what I hear again and again from victims in this city, which is that someone has come into my life and taken the most immeasurably precious thing that I have, and they've counted it as cheap. And I think when we look at the voices of Mel and Wilma, we see some of the ways that that cheapness is baked in to our ways of being with one another in our systems and our souls. And so I think about root causes, I wanna trace it all the way up. I also wanna trace it all the way down and find it in me, in us, and, and in those ways that we've accepted for being together. <clears throat> well, here I am. Uh, <laughs> All, all great answers. Uh, uh, I, I'm brutally honest, so y'all, y'all bear with me. I would, I would be speaking from the root cause. Would be actually um, being one of those people. I'm a, um, I'm one of those people that we're talking about. I was one of those people. So I would say the root cause of me fighting someone, or me shooting at someone, or me shooting someone when I was doing these things would be from uh, just anger. Uh, we have other people dealing with, you know, mental illness. And mental illness doesn't mean, you know, it's actual a physical retardation or anything. It can be you're having issues at home. And it's not just from a single parent home. I had both parents in my home. And I still managed to come out and do some things. I mean, I'm talking about really do some, some real stuff. and until you're on the other side of that gun, like when you, the power that it gives you, and a lot of people don't know if you've never held a gun, if you've never been respected, you get respect when you have a gun. And that's what a lot of these people are looking for. Even if the other guy has a gun, he's respecting you because you have a gun also. So a lot of these people are looking for respect. You're popular all of a sudden when you have a gun. You matter when you have a gun. And then when that plays out, are you gonna bust your gun? I mean, are you gonna shoot it? Now after you shoot the gun, now you're, you're that guy, now you're the man. So, but at the same time, now you're a target. So I would say the root would be just to, it would, um, self-esteem. That would be a, a issue for feeling like you would have to get a gun. A lot of these kids, a lot of these older guys and, and middle-aged, they don't know who they are, and they're still trying to find themselves. So they end up get, getting in a group, and, and they, those people validate them, let them know, you, you cool now, because you got us, we got your back, but this is what you got to do. And if this person doesn't know who they are, they have no confidence in themselves, and they haven't been brought up in the right admonition that, okay, you don't have to be like everybody else, they're going to do just that. They're going to seek to be people pleasers. So that's what happens a lot of times. And my issue, I wasn't a people pleaser. I was the type of person that I would see some things that my father would do and I didn't approve of, but I couldn't stop it because I was a kid. So therefore, I put it in my mind at age seven or eight. If I saw somebody else bullying somebody, I wouldn't allow it. So I'm, at, I'm, in, I'm in fourth grade saying this to myself. So coming up, I was always the one that I would attack the bullies. And I'm not the only one dealing with that. I'm not the only person that just doesn't like to see injustice going on, whether it's with a kid, a teacher, whatever. I might be sitting in class and somebody keep interrupting the class and I see the teacher's afraid to say something about it. I would say something. 
So then it would become my fight. So it's the same way in the street. You might see somebody, a guy selling drugs, and he's mean to the, the person that's buying drugs from him. I didn't like, I had an issue with that. So there's so many situations, and, and I would have to approach that situation right. Most guys are not fighting anymore. So yeah, I might approach the situation with a gun, but this is, this is the inside, this is what's going on. Like, it's right there. This is not a statistic. This is not a, maybe this is going on. This is what I've seen. This is what I've taken part in. This is what I've, I've, this is the kind of groups I've been around. And I always tell people, I don't ever want them to get caught up in the, um, some people get caught up in being from the projects or being from the rough side of town. That has a play in it. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but I always tell people, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. So I'm not, I'm not from the projects. I didn't come up in a single family home. I had my mom and my dad. I was in church every Sunday. But when I was in school, if there was an issue, I was on it. If I was trying to protect one person and I was going to get this guy, he had a group of friends, it was us. And then we're getting it in at the skating ring. We get older, we're at the mall. Now we're in cars. Now we're not fighting. Now we're shooting at each other. And then you go home and yeah, like nothing happened. That's it. Mm. Thank you all for that. Um, what? So that, that's, those are some of the root causes, some of the statistics um, that sets a nice context. This, this question is, what can we do to prevent gun violence? I mean, we hear a lot about the federal policies for universal background checks um, or assault weapon bans. There are also state efforts for red flag laws and local initiatives for increased policing. I mean, what wisdom can you offer about those approaches or other approaches to preventing gun violence? What, what can we do to prevent it? Okay. Uh, hard to follow such inspiring words. Um, so I think one one thing that um, that's very interesting about this issue is that um, the U.S. actually doesn't have a lot more crime um, than a lot of other countries that are comparable to us. We just have a lot more fatal crime, and you know, so you you can talk about root causes, and I completely agree with everything that was said here. Um, but other countries have racism, other countries have socioeconomic challenges, other, you know, and so forth. Um, very important to attack all of those things, absolutely. But I think what we uniquely have here is a combination of these socioeconomic and, you know, historical, social, Race, racial factors and ready accessibility to guns. And so um, in some ways like gun death, as we say in our book, is a, by, is a byproduct um, of, of violent crime. So if you, took, if you took guns out of the equation, we would, have, we would still have violence, but it would just be a lot less, lot less lethal. Many, many fewer people would die. Um, so you have to, I, I think it's really important as we're working on making this a more beloved and beautiful country and a more just place to think about that you know the introducing this weapons into the situation is going to make all of these underlying factors much worse um, 
the most of the social science research, and, and there is a lot of good research, not as much as we would like, of course, but would suggest that, that, that you know, that all sorts of different interventions will have some sort of effect. Um, the, the bad thing is there's not one thing that we could do that's going to, you know, quickly reduce gun violence. But there are a lot of things we could do that would be not terribly hard politically, not terribly expensive, that would do a little bit of good in a lot of different um, situations. So um, just, I mean, I, could, I have a long list, but we could, um, you know, institute universal background checks so that firearms that are um, sold um, by private individuals to other individuals, that those people have to undergo a background check. That would, research shows, um, reduce the amount of um, weapons used in crime. Um, we could do a lot better job enforcing gun laws that are on the books, so giving law enforcement um, the authority and the resources to, um, you know, collect firearms from people who are no longer allowed to have them and so forth. Um, the, um, you know, I think we could tighten sort of some of the domestic violence laws. That would do some good. Um, there are, you know, huge categories of people who shouldn't have firearms but are right now in most states not excluded um, or not prohibited. Um, and there's been a real turn, I think, in the gun violence prevention movement um, and, you know, inspired by a lot of social science toward um, what we call a risk-based approach to reducing gun violence as opposed to um, a sort of categorical approach. So without getting too much into the weeds, right now um, there are certain categories of people who just, if you're in that category, you are not allowed to have a gun. Um, and those categories are pretty blunt and they're pretty, um, they're missing a lot of people who shouldn't have a firearm and they're including a lot of people who would probably be perfectly safe in owning a firearm. Um, so, for example, um, you know, if I committed a felony, or let me do a different thing, if I, if I were involuntarily admitted to a mental hospital 50 years ago, because I had just had a bad point in my life, um, I probably would not be allowed to have a firearm now. Even if I've had, you know, my, I've had perfect mental health in that intervening 50 years. If I was convicted of a violent misdemeanor yesterday, I could in most states have a firearm. So you tell me who's, who's at greater risk of committing violence, right? The person who had an involuntary commitment 50 years ago and has led a perfectly safe life since, or the person who's just been convicted of a violent misdemeanor. I'm not talking about domestic violence, I'm talking about other kinds. Um, so, so I think we could do a better job of you know, assessing the categories of people who are at heightened risk and, and then, and, and also, you know, we do have a Second Amendment right in this country to own a firearm, um, you know, within certain limits. Um, you know, perhaps restoring firearm rights to people who really aren't, aren't dangerous. So that would be a short list, but I would love to hear more from my colleagues. Well, I guess I can carry that, that conversation on as it relates to, to just gun control, not con gun control that's um, imposed by laws only, but gun control by individuals who own guns. Um, how do you secure your weapons? And here in the city of Durham, more than 40% of weapons that are used in crimes are stolen from legal gun owners, many times from legal gun owners. So if the accessibility uh, to weapons means that our citizens need to be more responsible, that's part of that conversation too. Uh, I also believe that there should be um, uh, background checks that ensure that individuals who shouldn't have weapons don't have weapons. Um, also, regulating the other types of markets 
that exist from businesses that sell guns, uh, pawn shops that sell guns to individuals that don't um, need to have them or who shouldn't legally possess weapons, uh, gun trafficking. Uh, it's easy to get a weapon, whether you steal it or whether it's um, uh, sold to you through some type of enterprise. So um, from a preventive standpoint, um, we can do a number of things. We can be responsible as, um, of course, we all um, believe in having our Second Amendment rights for those that, that wish to possess firearms, but at the same time, there should be some level of accountability and responsibility. Um, here in the city of Durham, most stolen weapons come from unlocked vehicles. And of course, individuals purchase weapons for protection. And, um, and, and we understand that. But um, when weapons are left in vehicles and um, vehicles are broken into on a regular basis, then um, guns sometimes get in the hands of, of young people and other folks that don't um, possess them for all the right reasons. So um, just wanted to put that out there as it relates to just the, from the preventive standpoint. I really appreciate that. Yeah, the stolen gun statistic is so striking. And and for a number, and I'm interested to hear Rob talk about, yeah, guns and availability in Durham. Um, I think that'll, I'd really want to hear it. But I just reflect quickly on like connection and disconnection. The fact that most, uh, such a sizable percentage of guns and crimes are stolen guns means any perception that I might have as a legal gun owner that I am somehow disconnected from the reality of gun violence in Durham is, is just a f flat out, you know, it's, it's a delusion. So I think, I think I see that just inherent connection we have to each other in the way that we take responsibility, not just for me and mine, but us and ours. I think that that comes out as pivotal. And then on a disconnect sense, I really appreciate this idea of risk versus category assessment because one of the things you spend enough time with victims and then you spend time with policy and advocacy organizations, particularly when we have such different categories of gun violence that we're solving for, it is so easy to feel like the conversation on policy is thoroughly abstract from the lived reality of what it is to suffer and to like face gun violence in Durham on a, on a daily basis as someone who's carrying a gun or as someone who's losing a loved one. And so I think having a more fine-tuned conversation that points us to where we're uniquely connected and, and, and doesn't allow a, this sort of disconnect on, on either a policy imagination or a that's not my problem imagination feels really important. Okay, here we go. Uh, as far as the guns, um, it's, it's really an issue I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. It's, as the chief said, y'all, it's easy to get a gun on the street. It's really easy. It's almost better, not almost, I would say it's better to get a gun off the street than to have a legal gun. And I'm saying that because uh, if I have a legal gun and I shoot you, I gotta stay here till the police get here to do this paperwork. And I gotta explain what happened. In some kind of way, I gotta make it look like, you know, it was your fault. That's, you know, if, that's if you're still breathing. So it's better you would most guys you want the dirty gun what they call a throwaway you want that because after you finish doing what you're doing you throw it away uh, either take it apart or melt it down in acid 
or scratch off the serial number. So guns are going for, you know, you can get you a pistol, three, four hundred dollars, and I uh, get you a rifle. Rifles are cheaper, depending on if you're talking about a, a AR with two, two, threes, that those run you probably about four hundred. Or you can get AK forty seven for five or six hundred. Uh Nobody's thinking about how far those bullets travel before they drop. Nobody's thinking about the grain in a bullet that gives it more firepower to go through houses and go through three or four people. Nobody's thinking about that. They're just thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm tired of what I'm dealing with, so I need to get what I need to make a statement. So as far as the guns, uh, that's, a, that's a situation where the only way I would attack that situation uh, what I've always noticed is when the winter comes, most people want to be warm, so a lot of people in the house. And uh, most guys, when they're selling drugs out on the block, they have to all go to what they call the trap house, so everybody's inside. I would only admonish the police to find out where the trap house is, and you'll get more bang for your buck. You probably run into more guys, you find more drugs, and where the drugs is, it's gonna be a gun to protect it. So uh, as they were saying, Stolen guns, that's, that's normally the going thing. So uh, if, we can, if we can find a way to, to pay attention to what's going on and not lose focus of what we're doing and not just get ready and, and excited when, a, when somebody gets killed, uh, Durham is good for that. You know, somebody gets killed, everybody's, oh, we're going to march. We're going we're gonna to paint the walls. We're going we're gonna to do this. And, you know, about six days it dies down. You know, and I had said uh, on a post on Facebook, Durham has become numb to shootings, getting numb to murders. So it's, it's, it's getting there. It's, it's almost like a, if somebody doesn't get killed, everybody like, oh, ain't nobody got killed yet. You know, it's, you know we, we're anticipating it. So, so as I was saying again, if we can find a way to catch these situations in bulk, I think we would do better and showing showing guys that you know man we ain't playing with y'all when when we sit you down this time you're gonna have to sit down meaning you're gonna have to do some real time and then we got a, a lot of people to understand we have younger guys doing these crimes and they get locked up they get street credit so a lot of them 15 16 you know they 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 get a body or they they kill somebody they you know, they're probably going to get 10 years. But when they come home, they don't have to work no more. They get 10% of what everybody making on the block. That's just it. So a lot of guys, this, we see these younger these younger guys doing these shootings and whatnot. They come home, they're going to be good. They're the king when they come home, as long as they keep their mouth shut when they get questioned. So a lot of guys, that's their, that's their mind. That's, that's their, their pinnacle. That's what they want to be. How do you... How do you um deal with or approach um, and take into account a liberty for gun ownership. It's already been alluded to, right? People who are owning guns legally, even good uses, quote-unquote good uses of guns, while also seeking to prevent the misuse of guns. I mean, how do you hold these things together? I'll just, yeah, I'll just continue from where Rob left us off, which is that and, 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 but I'll start here. It's just like I learned so much in a few years with the Religious Coalition about the reality of where gun ownership sits against race in Durham. 
Um, and, and one of the basic takeaways is that if you're a white person concerned about gun violence in Durham, or you're a black person concerned about gun violence in Durham, one of the big differences between you is that the black folks might actually know something about guns. They might know where to find one, they might have some experience with one, they might carry one for protection. Whereas the white folks just want there to be no more guns and they may or may not have ever even been in the same room as a gun. Uh, and, and, and so I think one of the things that, that, that carries over from Rob here is that there's a really different conversation going on when our responsible gun owner is a, is a rural white man versus a person of color in this country that has a very different set of reasons for, for a, a mindset of self-defense and self-preservation. And, and I think some of the things that get missing there is that none of, we don't really talk about the fact that white gun ownership in American history vis-a-vis self-defense has been about the, the perceived or real threat of oppressed folks that like black and brown folks have had very good reasons for armed resistance against white supremacy, that the history of policing in our country is inflected by this, that even nonviolent American movements, Charles Cobb, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. You're talking about nonviolence in the deep south in the 60s, you're also having conversation about who's going to, with a gun, hold space for us while we, while we plan and organize. So I think all these things get to a, a contemporary reality where if I'm feeling the need for self-defense as a white person in Durham and only 15% of, of gun violence in Durham is, is affecting white people, where's that coming from? Some of the folks that we are most likely to police for having a gun are also some of the folks that have the best logical reason for needing a gun to feel safe in the neighborhood where they live. So I think when we follow these these questions of like use and misuse into basic self-defense, it gets much more complex and granular and it gets much more historically rooted in ways that I think make us ask a lot harder questions. Anyone else wanna? I um, take those comments seriously and um, the, I, I actually study the gun violence prevention movement more, that's sort of my little niche within this larger area. And it's been really interesting to watch as the criminal justice reform movement has gained strength and moral force, um, that it's sitting sort of uncomfortably next to the gun violence prevention movement. These are people who share a set of values and a lot of overlap and a lot of um, shared concerns, but they're, they rest uncomfortably next to each other, and I think that's something that people in both movements are trying to figure out. Um, when I read your question um, about sort of balancing liberty and you know sort of social welfare, I immediately went to the Second Amendment and the recent jurisprudence. Um, so the Supreme Court in 2008 found for the first time in history that there that the Second Amendment intends to convey a personal right of gun ownership in the home for self-protection. Um, that was a, a ruling that struck down the District of Columbia's effective handgun ban. And it was followed by another ruling two years later that struck down Chicago's. Um, and so those were, these were landmark, um, very important rulings, um, victories for gun rights organizations. 
um, but didn't have a huge amount of practical impact on the ground. So there's been a, a huge amount of, um, you know, sort of follow-up lawsuits trying to use these precedents to strike down gun laws around the country, and they've they've really come to not. I mean, essentially the so DC can't ban guns, Chicago can't ban guns, there were a few Chicago suburbs, their handgun bans fell. Um, Illinois used to uh, ban concealed carry, the carrying of concealed weapons in public, just ban it. That that law has had to be relaxed. But other than that, I mean, the kinds of gun control laws that we would conventionally think about have, of course, have just upheld and upheld and upheld, even under these new um, Supreme Court um, rulings. So. You know, I I think that you have a a more interesting answer to the kind of conflict between liberty and social welfare because as I read the law, there's there's not in practical terms much of a trade-off. Um, we can have, you know, we can have reasonable restrictions on access to firearms and you know in the interest of of public safety. Thank you, Chief Davis or or Rob. Does anyone else want to well, chime in? Well, I'll just. Sort of, um, first of all, um, Rob's honesty in reality is, is um, just very compelling sometimes because, um, and I appreciate the fact that you can come into this setting and really talk about what is in the community and share, um, you know, pathways, if you will, of, on, on how we can overcome. So, um, to me, this really just boils down to decades of talking about the same thing. You know, I've been in this business for 30 years now, and one day, decade after the next, we're talking about the exact same thing. And when you really listen to the community and the voice of the community, the community is saying over and over again, and some of you may have said it, nobody's gonna get serious about this until it happens in their community. And that's the reality, that money and influence is not necessarily in, in the black and brown communities where crime um, is, is most affected. And until there is a, a very, very intentional uh, movement to, to address um, some of the social issues that set a foundation for crime, then I will continue to be in business. And I say to folks all the time, I wish somebody would put the police department out of business. But that's not gonna happen until we start looking at the root causes of crime. And they don't start with the 15 and the 16 year old that's out there shooting. They start with all kinds of deprivation, poverty, and all of those social problems that exist in communities. And we will continue to have these types of conversations until there is some concerted effort to put some of the resources that are needed to really impact change. I've been doing this for 30 years and we cannot arrest crime away. Because if we could, then I'd be out of business by now. But that, that's not the case. And when we look at, when I look at, I'm gonna speak from my lens. When I look at a homicide, I don't see 
just one African-American body. I see one that is deceased and two going to jail. Two that are deceased and three going to jail. And my math just consumes me when I think about what is happening, not just in the city of Durham, but around the country to minority communities that are impacted by gun violence. So it's very personal in my work. It's not about arresting people. It's about making people safe. And in order to do that, yes, we absolutely have to arrest some people. But the hard work is ensuring that we can reduce the numbers of people that even end up in the system and start at an earlier age. So I know I digressed there, but I just wanted to sort of put a different perspective from, you know, how I see crime, how um, our young people are impacted, and children are products of their environment. And just because we have individuals who would do harm if a system was in place to have provided the support for that individual earlier on in their lives, maybe that person wouldn't be or wouldn't feel compelled to be in, in that predicament. So um, law enforcement isn't the answer alone. We will always have work to do, but our work does not have to be so burdensome because other entities have, have not contributed to this gun violence problem. Thank you. I want to piggyback off of, off of what the chief was saying uh, as far as the, the kids being, you know, a product of their environment. And, and that, that speaks volumes to me. And I say that because I know, I know what environment I came from. And I know, you know, what it made me. And I keep saying it wasn't, a, it wasn't the projects. Uh, I want everybody to stay to, well, pretty much if you look around the room, it's for one, if I look at it like this, when people say they're, they're I'm tired of this, I'm tired of this, what's going on. You're so tired that you're not here to make a change. That's what I see, but you are so tired. So what I see, I, I see a city that's not tired. I see a city that's only concerned about what's going on in their bubble. Okay, if it don't concern me or mine or at my doorstep, I'm, you know, I'm just come back and I'm going to gossip about it a little bit. I'm going to put a couple posts on Facebook. So this is what we're dealing with. So what we have to do, I'm not going to say figure out a way. I'm going to say this is what we have to do. We have to come together and we have to be visible. Uh, I'm going to try to tie this in. Uh, with, my, with my group, what we do, we go into a different neighborhood every, every Wednesday, every week. Uh, I try to go to the neighborhoods where there was a shooting at recently, uh, right the day after, if not the day of. So we go and we stand out, we call it standing in the way of violence. So what we're saying when we're there, you know, whether all of them to be out there know <laughs> what we're out there for, we're out there saying, if you're gonna do it, do it while we're here. If you're gonna come by and you're gonna shoot this neighborhood up, you're gonna have to do it in front of all these people, all these cell phones, all these potential snitches, 
do it out here. People have to understand the power of just themselves. Now, hear me on this. I've had this conversation with my friend Ben. That's what I call him. I told Ben, now listen, hear me out. When we're outside, when we're out there in the neighborhood, I said, one white person counts for four black people. Now, I'm going to explain this to you. When I was out there doing my thing, I don't, I don't care if it was one white person outside and it was the mailman, and I saw the guy that I wanted, I'm gone, I'll come back later. Because they think, they honestly, they think that y'all just tell everything and y'all got contacts to the president and y'all just, you know, y'all just got a plug that we ain't got. And I'm just going to tell you, that's just it. And, that, and that's just, and I'm telling you straight up. So, you know, when we have our, we have our functions, and, and it's like, it's the majority white. I'm out there smiling. I'm like, I'm like yeah, yeah, we, and, and it's really, they're safer than I am, you know? So they're thinking I'm protecting them, but in, in all actuality, really, man, I'm, I'm good, you know? I, well, hey, I'm, I got y'all out here, you know? So I feel like if we could, if we could pull together and say we're really tired, like we, we really are tired. So we're gonna make a statement. We're gonna block some streets and some driveways. We're gonna make it difficult for these people that are comfortable shooting in at two o'clock in the afternoon. Y'all comfortable now. Y'all hanging out cars and stuff with assault rifles. Y'all, hey, yeah, yeah, we're in the wild, wild west. We have to make it uncomfortable for them. But the thing is, we've made it comfortable for them by just sitting back and saying, this my bubble, it don't, it don't bother me or mine. So we have to, step outside of our bubble, step outside of our house, come outside of our churches, come together as a city, not be at home talking about what's going on, not be at church talking about this blessing and this miracle. Let's talk about what's going on outside. Let's talk about the blessing that you may need at the stoplight when two guys are shooting at each other. So it's, it's, it's reality. This, I, this needs to be a situation where when somebody else, somebody loses a family member, make it your reality. You don't have to go to the funeral, but it, it could have been you. Look at all the innocent bystanders. Think about if Zion would have been white. This place would be full. There would be a lot more news, news people here. There's a couple of y'all in here, but it would be a lot more than that. I mean, it's just sad to say, but this is the time we're living in. And we have to take it for face value. Think about that. We haven't heard anything else about Zion till today when they picked up one of the guys that's been tied in with the shooting. But other than that, it's died down. They don't put the balloons at the, at the site anymore. It's just, it's, it's business as we know it. This is Durham for you. So my challenge is for, for everybody here and everybody that's looking, if you're serious, don't, don't talk me to death. Come out, come outside, show it. I'm serious. It was a shooting here. You won't do it where I am. If you do, I'ma tell. That's the face you have to put it out there. If you do it in front of me, I got my cell phone, we're gonna get your tag, the rental car that you done gotten, somebody else's name and all of that. Everybody's going until somebody tells what's going on. This is the time we're living in. And the and the snitch code that they that used to be that that doesn't matter anymore. That code of the street is gone. When you have a situation where kids are getting hurt and women are getting hurt, those are, that's, that's just the street code. You don't bother kids and you don't bother women. That's it. That's been annihilated. That's happening all the time now. So the street code is over. 
There's no, it's no honor out there, period. So now it's come outside, we see something, listen, we're going to deal with it accordingly. That's all. Thank you, Rob. Um, before this last question, I'll ask you if you have your questions ready on those index cards. Our student worker, Jessica, uh, is going to be walking around the room. If you just hold up the card, she'll come around to, to take your questions. Um, and then we will ask some of those questions to our panelists. So my final question to all of you um, is, you know, we hear a lot about gun violence in the news and even in this conversation. And, but what, from your own experience, um, is something that people don't realize about gun violence or something that gets um, underreported about guns or gun violence? What are, what are some things or something that we don't realize about gun violence? Yeah, I'll jump in here because the chief, thank you for your witness. I mean, truly, we need a police chief that says, yeah, that, that speaks the way you do about how violence sits in our community. And Rob's reading my mail, and so I'm just going to read the rest of it. So, which is two things that are underreported based on my three years. Uh, you know, standing with victims and being out with Rob, however many Wednesdays it's been, Community trauma is ubiquitous. 800 plus deaths in 25 years, thousands of loved ones grieving every week, violence moves in communities. If you know one person, you probably know more than one person. A quilt that will roll out halfway down this aisle with 800 names. I walk by it, I don't know anybody. Black folks walk by it, I know a dozen people. Okay, every single time there's a homicide hits the news, Thousands of people in this city are triggered based on the most traumatic moment of their life. And as the chiefs pointed out, it goes the other way too. Because based on clearance rates, particularly on shootings, there's a good chance that the person who shot your loved one's walking around your community too. Or shot you and you, you didn't die. So, you, I, so the whole problem is walking around in one community all the time being continually re-triggered and traumatized as we allow this to persist. And that's how little we value black pain. And Rob's name, the other half, which is how much we value white bodies. I show up with Rob, and all of a sudden, the community's safer. And what, what that's speaking to, to me, is like, we got to implicate ourselves. If I want to have urgency, I need to open myself to the true impact of the problem and, and talk about where does it hurt and follow that until it hits me, and now I've got some urgency. Now I've got some, some motivation, and I've got some place to begin again and again and again and do something. Be useful. Well, I think what I would say is that you know, when, when, we, when we speak of statistics and shooting incidents that occur, we're always talking about those incidents that are reported. Just think how many incidents go unreported in this city. So basically, and most of the time, most of the time the incidents occur in what we call hot spot areas. 
those same communities over and over again. And the level of terror and fear that exists in those communities by people who just want to go to bed at night, to constantly hear gunfire, to constantly hear about somebody that was shot, and just to, I guess, bring it home for you, as we entered this room, I was texting back to my command staff about yet another shooting that occurred just as we sat here in this room where one person was shot and another individual was arrested with the gun. Um, the, the, as, as far as another person is not deceased, but just in, in that same hot spot community that we're talking about. And it wasn't until we started creating a different type of engagement with our community that we saw a decrease in some of those incidents. And that engagement was more about establishing relationships with community members. And as we were establishing these relationships with the kids, what we were really trying to do was create an environment for the kids to just be able to go to the playground. The kids couldn't go to the playground. That's all we wanted to do was give those children an opportunity to do what some kids do every day. Just get outside, ride a bicycle. You don't have to worry about them and they're okay. And for me, it's so unfair. I had a great childhood. I remember the days of riding my bike and my hair flying in the wind. Yeah, it was a mess too. <laughs> but we want that for other young people. They deserve that opportunity. So when we think in terms of gun incidents, and I'll, and I'll say this quickly, in 2018, the number of shootings, and I'm not talking about homicides, there were 619 shootings in the city of Durham. In 2017, it was 729. In 2016, it was 703. But out of those shootings, a large portion of those shootings were just reports of gunfire. Not where anybody got hit or anything, just reports of gunfire. Somebody calling the police and saying, somebody's shooting outside. And sometimes bullets hit houses and cars and property and scare kids that are in the bed and sometimes unfortunately they actually hit some innocent person. So that's what I would I would end with that just the thought of not being able to live in an environment where you feel like you can walk outside without getting hurt or your child can go outside without that's living in bondage. So you asked about something that we think is underreported. Um, we haven't talked a lot about mass shootings, um, and understandably so, but that's when the news tends to get interested. Um, so I get a lot of calls if there's one of these, you know, incidents. And um, invariably, and I used to be a newspaper reporter, I love the press, especially the press that's here. I'm married to a former newspaper reporter. But invariably, I get, the, I get the same question, which is, you know, tell me why the NRA is so strong. And like, that's, that's gonna be the story, and they're just looking for me to just plug in some quotes. 
And I had a, I will not say the outlet, but a prominent outlet called and sort of, you could tell that was going to be their story. And, you know, kept coming at me with that question. And, you know, I tried to answer because, you know, the, the NRA and other gun rights organizations are strong. And, you know, I think that they're welcome at the table. Um, I think all policymakers want all sides represented. Um, and at the end of the interview, the reporter said to me, you know, is there anything I should have asked? And I said, yeah, I think you're missing actually the story. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, the gun violence prevention movement is stronger, has more resources, has more organizations, is more strategic than it ever has been in the, you know, 25 years that I've been studying it. And that's the news. And um, she's like, okay, well, thank you, bye. Um, and so, you know, but I think there are a lot of challenges. So as a political scientist, I think about sort of what you're talking about, we have to have, and you're what you're talking about. We need, we need people like, like the people at this table sort of organizing in communities um, in a kind of holistic way. And as I look at it, there's always, there's always been talent in communities and it's, it's, often, um, it's often moms um, and you know, people who are directly affected, family members, um, who are doing their best to provide um, safe alternatives and, and structures and love and witness and everything else in the communities. But usually these are small organizations. They don't have any money. They don't have links to outside resources. They don't have a lot of political sway necessarily. I'm not talking about the people at this table, but just historically. So there's the sort of community level grassroots groups that are kind of disconnected from things that might actually help them grow and have a greater impact. And then there are groups that are more kind of national gun control organizations that have more money and maybe are a, bit, a little bit better connected. But these, they're kind of working on the same problem, but they're very disconnected from one another. And I think that's the real challenge. It's always been the challenge. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think that the, the, the kind of national level groups that have a lot more money and a lot more resources now than ever before are really coming to grips with this disconnect. And, you know, I'm, so it's, it's, for me, it's a hopeful moment. I don't want to leave everybody feeling that there is no hope. I think there is. I think there's, this is an important moment. I think there's more momentum right now for really understanding this problem in all its dimensions um, and doing something about it. And we're not there, but I, I feel like there's, like there's an energy there that, that I just haven't seen in the 25 years that I've looked at this. So want to chime in uh at the end she was talking about those small groups she talking about me that was they hit home for me i we a chance to change are the small group who don't have funding everything's out of my pocket i even make my own t-shirts i have a press and all that this i did this I bought the shirt at walmart then you go get the vinyl so i'm saying all that to say let's get behind it get behind me I'm saying that, uh, I say it jokingly, but what we need is what we call a credible messenger. I learned that at another job I was working at. You need a credible messenger. We don't have a lot of credible messengers now. We have to ride the wave of somebody who can actually appeal to somebody that we can't appeal to. It's people that some of y'all can talk to that I can't talk to, that's, and that's just it. Uh, and there's some people I can talk to that y'all can't talk to. They might, they be, they could be saying, we're finna go to the store. And y'all are like, what did he say? He going where? I'm not even going to the store. But I'm going to pick on right, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Okay, he finna go, he finna come right back. Okay, yeah, done. So 
what I'm saying is I'm a credible messenger. There are a few other credible messengers. We got to attach ourselves to this and we got to ride that wave so we can reach these people that we can't really talk to. I haven't, I've been in here one time. I came in last time. I came in, it was a funeral. That was the only time I came in here. And I'm in here now for, I, nobody would have told me I would have been in here talking in front of y'all. Like, none of this. You know, this is more like me being in, in some, this is like a, a court thing for me. You know, you know, so it's like, it's appreciated. And at the same time, I want y'all to understand that when you have a small grassroots, is what they're saying, uh, group that's really genuine, really want to see a change, don't get paid. No, nobody on my team gets paid. Uh, I don't either. Uh, I'm doing it because I got an issue with what's going on. You get behind that and you ride it. And then we get others. You know, we, we have a, you don't want a situation where people are telling you they're credible messengers when they're really not. You don't want a situation where people are telling you they hold weight in a certain neighborhood and they don't. Because then if there's still things going on in that neighborhood, they're looking at you like, hey, I thought you had that taken care of. But it's still shootings going on. It's still murders going on. So we have to find someone that's credible. And, and being credible, it, can, it doesn't mean that you're an ex-game member. It doesn't mean you know, you've shot a 1,000 people. You can be credible just because you know how to talk to people. I'm from East Durham. I can talk to people from the South Side. I can talk to people from Turnkey. I can talk to people from Bragtown. Not, I'm not from over there. They actually had beef with my side of town, but I was able to go and talk to these people. I'm a credible messenger. I'm, I, I just be talking. I, it's nothing, you know, nothing, nothing special about it. I'm just, man, we just talking about something. We got something in common. We're from Durham, and that's it. And it's give respect, get respect. Anytime I walk up to any guy, I know guys I know carrying guns, or I know gang members or not gang members, or guys I know just did something the day before. You get my respect. Hey, how you doing? And I ain't respecting you because I know you might do something. I'm respecting you because you're, you're a man like me or you're a woman. You just give respect, get respect. And a lot of times that's all they want. They want to be acknowledged as somebody, somebody important. So we come together and we do all this acknowledging to these people that feel less important and we acknowledge them as important. They, they'll feel, uh, they won't feel like they have to go and, and take it if it's given to them. Because at any rate, they're going to get it. Even if they have to lose something, they're going to take that. That's all. Thank you, Paul. We have several questions, and I'll try to combine them um, into groups. And feel free to chime in if you have a burning yes or answer to the question. But everyone doesn't necessarily have to chime in on every question as well. And, and um, let's see how many of these we can get through. These are great questions. Um, this first one, which based on what we see in the news media and social media, and this is a great question. What has the Durham PD done or can they do to prevent gun violence done by police officers? Well, I think that um, we've done quite a bit just by making our officers aware that this is an issue around the country. Just because it hasn't happened, you know, it doesn't happen as regularly in our town. This is a issue that is um, quite prevalent these days and uh, training is critically important. Um, 
different types of de-escalation training is critically important. I will say that the Durham Police Department has a crisis intervention uh, training program that we are leading the state in as it relates to officers who are trained to identify certain types of situations that require some other kind of action besides physical force and referring individuals to the different types of services that, that are needed. Our goal is to de-escalate and not escalate. So when you train and you ensure that officers go out on the street with that mentality, then we don't have numbers because de-escalation training is, is a new type of training, but there have been several incidents where instead of the officer using lethal force or using some type of force, they were able to communicate, put distance between themselves and an individual that might be perceived as dangerous or whatever until we could mitigate that particular situation. So I can only speak for the Durham Police Department and what I believe um, is needed in our department, not just as it relates to how our officers are trained to uh, respond physically, but to also uh, train them so that they understand how important implicit bias is and to understand what their biases are. And even though we can't change what people feel and think about some other group of people, we can put policies in place so that they can adhere to what our principles and our values and our beliefs are as it relates to how we treat our community members. And just like at Coca-Cola and Delta and all of these other places, I talk to our officers about our citizens are our customers. Instead of looking at um, policing and law enforcement in the traditional sense that we go out on the street to make arrests. We go out on the street to keep people safe and to provide the level of service that is expected from your family member. And if you communicate that way, I ask them all the time, how would you feel if your grandmother was spoken to that way or your family member was spoken to that way in just simple traffic stops? So, um, to, to bring this um, to a close, I think the training and the philosophy of the department is critically important. Even though we see all kinds of scenarios play out around the country, we have to take care of Durham and we have to have a philosophy that supports safety for our officers and for our citizens. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. there's, another, there's another question here and um, two questions, but one question, two cards. Uh, one says the country was founded um, on greed and violence, founded upon it. And, and this question has to do with, it says, please talk about the role of money and power in shaping American perceptions of and experiences with guns. A root cause of our uniquely American problem is greed, money, power. Um, you have the oligarch someone puts on, on the card. How does all of this connect with this issue of gun violence? Money, power. 
I can I can say um, hmm, in my in my time just being out there, the feds would do a sweep. Uh, this was maybe like 15 years ago. They would normally do a sweep maybe every five years. They would pick up a different group every every five years. It would be a different group pretty much running running Durham uh, as far as like with providing dope and every time a group would get picked up the gun violence would pick up now that picks up because pretty much the dope which is the money is it keeps peace on the street to be honest with you if you don't know uh if i have an issue with ben and i'm the supplier and ben is buying from me and i have an issue with one of his guys I won't go to his guys. I'll go to Ben and say, Ben, I'm gonna stop supplying you if you don't get your guy under control. Now, the feds come and pick me up. Now there's no reason for Ben to talk to me or, or try to negotiate the issue anymore because there's no leverage there. So when you take the dope off of the street, now it's free reign for anybody to shoot each other, go see about this situation that you've been burning to talk about, it's free reign. So it's almost a situation where some, it, it, it almost has to be some dope left on the street because th that's all these guys respect is money. Oh, they call it a bag. That's what they respect. A guy will not go and shoot this guy because it's going to mess up the money. Or a guy won't go and argue with a guy on a block because it might be something big and it'll attract police. You'll attract the police, it's going to have the crackheads go away, so it's messing up the money. So when there's no dope and there's no money, there's gonna be more violence. So now it's an answer to that, but he didn't ask me for the answer. He's asking, y'all were asking. So that's, that's pretty much happened. That's it. I'd, yeah, yeah, I'd love to follow up behind that because I think something that comes out in what Rob is saying is something that I could have put in, the, in the, what we don't hear is that Rob's talking about it another economy. We got two, at least two economies in Durham. And the, the one that Rob's talking about and the one that is building buildings downtown, they are fundamentally different realities. And so until we start reckoning with that and the way that each of those economies speaks to how much any particular life is worth, and both of them are pretty good at valuing some lives over others and making those decisions in economic terms, until we figure out some language that can connect those two and speak to the value of human life outside of those two coarse economies, I, I, I think we're where, where the question leaves us. And I would suggest maybe something as simple as every life counts in either of those. Could we stand between them and say, stop counting any life cheap? Whoever shot them, whatever the money says, whatever the overarching ideology says, this one counts to every one of us. Connected to, um, you can think of two different economies or more <laughs> than two economies, but even thinking about the various histories, this question is, or questions are, are linked to this. And um, someone mentions 
the history of this building, which and really West Campus of the black architect Julian Abel, which was not really known until I believe the 90s. It might have been or late 80s anyway. Um, and now the quad is called Julian Abel Quad, but they were setting the context for that of that knowledge not being known and linking to the history of of Af African Americans um, being seen as inhumane and justifying violence um, against black peoples, um, stealing inventions and medical discoveries and sort of this overall historical arc of a lack of justice um, toward African American communities. How is all of that historical context linked to this topic tonight? Well, I, I can speak to that um, just briefly. I, I think that we continue to live that. Even as a chief of police, I continue to live that. Just because I wear this uniform every day doesn't mean that I'm not exposed to different types of, of discriminatory types of, you know, actions. And because people don't know I'm a police chief um, outside of my uniform, whether I get waited on before someone else at a store or whether I get ignored. So it's your reality. And yes, history has continued to be a part of who we are. And even as a law enforcement person, years ago, law enforcement, and still today, is seen as a controlling system for communities. So the work that we do every day, and in my heart I feel is, is, is still noble work because communities need us. But at the same time, we have to be very careful about how we apply our, our law enforcement processes and procedures in certain types of communities because it's still embedded in the minds of individuals who actually experienced that, that maybe nothing has changed. So I consider myself in a very unique position and sometimes it is an arduous task to try to um, establish a level of trust that has been um, breached on so many different occasions. So um, the whole power concept, we live in a world that people who have power control the world with money and influence. If you're powerful, the least of these sometimes don't have safe environments to live in, the necessary sustenance to survive, equal education, and so many other things that some people just, you know, take for granted. So, um, and it can be very personal as, as I've spoken, you know, to, but um, we still feel that there's, there are issues that may not ever go away. 
because of the history. This is the last question here. Um, and then I'm going to give you all a final word. <laughs> all right. Um, and they set the context, these two different, about thinking, referencing Oakland, California, and how they've seen 50% reduction in gun violence in the last five years. Um, and so the, 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 this question has to do with, has Durham, are there any lessons to be learned? But linking that to this question, which is, do you want to solve the problem or just treat the symptom of gun violence? How do you solve the problem? How do you actually solve the problem? And, and, and I'm just going to say, I think I said it earlier, mm -hmm. that, that crime in our community has to be ad addressed from a holistic standpoint. It can't be just law enforcement fixing a problem that has so many other tentacles that aren't being addressed. It's like putting, um, you know, iodine on one part of a sore and allowing the rest of it to fester. We can't just be the Band-Aid. And of course we have pro programs and all kinds of um, social well-intended types of preventive initiatives, but it has to be work done on, on so many different levels. Anyone else? And also, uh, it has to be a uh, a, a group effort, like the chief saying, it can't just be, you know, the police. That's that's a fraction of you know what we need. Uh, like I was saying earlier about the credible messengers. Um, pretty much as far as the police, I mean, I don't know if y'all understand, but it's it's a. I mean, how can I say it? Uh, I'll say the people on my side of the fence. We don't deal with the police, and that's 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 just what it is. Now. I'm okay with the police, you know. I'm not a, like a, hey man, this is what happened. Come here, police, let me talk to you. But I don't have an issue with the police. I don't mind the police, uh, what they're doing and whatnot. I'm not just totally, you know, against the cops. A lot of people I know are. And what what uh, what I'll say to them is, um, don't get in a situation where you're happy to see them red and blue lights. Don't be laying down bleeding and you're like, I need them lights. Or you're trying to dial 911. So I look at it like, you know, you got, you got, you got, a, you got some cops that, you know, they just don't handle situations right. And then you got those ones that actually are trying. They're trying to bridge that gap. I'm okay with bridging that gap. I'm not going to be anti-police. And the only way we can get to the bottom of this thing is coming together. It's not... Uh, Let's, let's police our own neighborhoods. Let's police our own neighborhoods along with the police. If we could police our own neighborhoods, then the crime rate wouldn't be like it is. That's just it. You got a lot of people saying, let's police our own neighborhoods, but they won't come outside. The people in your neighborhood don't know who you are. They see you when you go to the mailbox and that's it. And then, you know, so, so let's, I'm, we're gonna scratch that. We're going to police our neighborhoods with the police. And let's get people that don't even stay in those neighborhoods to come out. Let's everybody go to everybody's neighborhood. I want to see where y'all stay. I want to come out there and police y'all neighborhoods. Y'all, I'm going to see y'all faces when I say this. 
Y'all neighborhoods was the neighborhoods that I would target if I was looking to take something out the car. <laughs> so I'm in your neighborhood. I was just in there in the wrong way. But if we're out there policing it, y'all ain't got to worry about me. You know what I'm saying? Or who I was. <laughs> so every neighborhood has its situations. You know, every neighborhood needs to be policed by the neighborhood and the police itself. It actually caused less work on the police because they are overworked. That's why we were asking for more cops, but we couldn't get them. With all that money we had to get them, we couldn't get them. That's, that's a whole nother meeting. So we can come together and work with them, but we have to, like I said, we have to get into the minds of these, the group that feel like, you know, the police are just, you know, are oh, they going to kill us? Or they just want to run us? Or they, they people just like we people. And that's how you got to look at it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They're, they're a, that's a person with that stuff on. They breathe. They put their pants on one leg at a time. I ain't seen nobody do two at a time yet. All right? So they're, they're just we have to understand that, get that in our minds. We can work with them. They can work with us. And we can come together and really do something about this and not just I don't want this to be just another meeting. I'm not here just to come talk to y'all. I, I would have saw y'all somewhere. But this is serious to me. I take this very serious. I want to see some of y'all after this. I don't, I don't want you to get my number and say, we want to email and don't do it. You know what I'm saying? Let's, this is, I'm impressed with this because nobody had to die for us to come and meet. Normally you get people coming together for, you know, oh, for, to talk about violence because somebody died the day before, somebody died a week before. So nobody died, and we're here talking about how we can prevent it ongoing. And we're not trying to curb it. We're not trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. We're trying to stop it because it's an issue. It's a problem. And I feel like if we can slow it down, I think we can stop it. But everybody has to be serious. Everybody's had have to have that sense of urgency. That same energy. I tell people, keep that same energy. Keep that same energy as if it happened to someone in your family. Keep that same energy as if it's a shooting in the neighborhood that it happened in your neighborhood. Because as long as you stay in Durham, I mean, Durham is small. We all go through the same stoplights. We all go to the same stores to get gas eventually. And it's... it's we have issues all over Durham. We're in District 1 or District 4, 3, 5. And if there's not enough police and you're in District 4, they'll actually take police from District 4 and put them in District 1, which leaves District 4 at bay for something to actually happen. But if we're policing our neighborhoods together, we can deal with that. But we got to come together to do that. So let's not just leave and everybody go to their corners and their bubbles. Let's conjoin our bubbles and we talk in our bubbles. All right, we make Durham a bubble. All right, my man. Uh, we're going to be on Holloway Street tomorrow, nine fifteen Guthrie Street tomorrow night. Yeah. One final word from each of you, in less than a minute. What do you want us to remember, or do? Don't yeah. rush now. I mean. yeah. <laughs> when we speak about gun violence, we be speak about something that is beyond fixing. Thousands of neighbors in this city's grief cannot be fixed. So I don't want us to leave 
or ever enter this conversation with a binary between prevention and compassion. When we find in our heart to declare unacceptable what has already happened, we are speaking to what we will allow in the future. The way that we create a culture of care around the suffering that violence has wrought in this community is precisely the same conversation as we have about what we will allow and how we will prevent violence in our community. And that includes being able to reckon with the shape and the real substance and suffering that goes with violent harm. interesting how um, we started talking about guns and gun violence and statistics and experiences and how at the end of this incredibly inspiring and sobering uh, conversation we're really talking about gun violence as a, a symptom of a much deeper sickness a, a much deeper sense of um, historically rooted um, inequalities, injustices, pains, et cetera. And um, I think that's all right. I think um, on a personal note, I think that this country is ill right now. And I think we are on, but I, I, I have to be optimistic because I don't have any choice. I think we're on the verge of something great. We're going through something awful um, in a lot of ways. I have, as, an, as a professor, somebody who deals with the you know, the 18 to 21 year olds now, admittedly, you know, they're Duke students, but um, so they're not necessarily representative of everybody, but I mean, I have so much faith in this next generation of leaders. I think they are, um, as represented here at this table, um, you know, incredibly committed, passionate, concerned, present, um, and you know, ready to change the world. I I am not one of those people who sort of may ha makes jokes about Gen Zs and Millennials. I think they're going to be amazing, and and the sooner we can hand leadership to to those folks, I think the better that we're going to be. I think my my final um, comments will will basically be first of all, thank you for uh, being here tonight and to and and stay here. Um, all evening to listen to this very important um, discussion. Um, I'm very optimistic about the city of Durham. I'm very optimistic about the Durham Police Department. Uh, I have witnessed change. I've witnessed change not just in the department, but I've witnessed change in the community as well. And that level of engagement can only mean that we are moving in the right direction. We still have work to do, but we will continue to push forward and work towards being a department that this city will be proud to have. Uh, to brand this department that on a national level, the things that we do here will be emulated in other cities. So again, thank you for the support that you provide our department and for your honesty and your engagement in the days to come. And I'll, I'll say I, I would like you all to remember, uh, I would say the title of my organization is A Chance to Change. And, and God gave me that, that uh, title. And I say that because I've been the person, I've been in the courtroom when the DA was saying my name, saying the charge, you know, and the judge didn't look up at me at all. He was just looking at all I've done. 
but not looking at the fact that it was five years ago, or it might have been 10 years ago, but just looking at how much, has, how much I've done with, in, in my criminal history. So I've been that person that didn't have somebody in the courtroom to pretty much advocate for me and say, he's changed. He's not that guy anymore. So let's not penalize him for what he did. He's already paid his debt to society for that, or he's already paid a lot of restitution for that. So that's what had me to do that. I want you all to remember that. Even, even when I've been pulled over by a policeman, I was told by a cop that I know, when they run my tags, it says belligerent. So the cops, they come up there thinking they're going to be dealing with a belligerent guy for something that happened 15 years ago. So I always say everybody deserves a chance to change. We all do. We've all, we've, we've all done something. And if you hadn't done anything, I'm curious to know what, you know, you, what's going on? What are you doing that we all ain't doing? You just ain't got caught yet. <laughs> I say about people that ain't got no record, you just ain't got caught. But at any rate, I want y'all to definitely remember that everybody deserves a chance to change. Thank you. Let me say thanks to all of the panelists for sharing their wisdom. Um, thank all of you for being here. Please join us in the narthex right in the back entrance uh, for a small reception. Can we thank all of our panelists for their wisdom? And may we all leave this place with a deep sense of and desire to give um, everyone a chance to change. So please join us at the reception. Thanks again.